This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by me. Hi, I'm Tim, the creator and facilitator of the New Evangelicals and host of the New Evangelicals podcast. Original, I know. We are a Jesus-centered and inclusive community that holds space for the folks marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and we help people like you leave that cold, dark, and damp basement of evangelical fundamentalism behind to explore the rooms of the Christian tradition together. You can check out our podcast to hear from all kinds of amazing guests who are way smarter than me, and even a few episodes where I get to rant to our podcast producer about how dangerous Christian nationalism is. Ah, good times. Check us out anywhere you get your podcasts or slide into our DMs on Instagram at The New Evangelicals. Thanks. How can you be part of a religious community that's straight up Sometimes it feels like the church is trying to hold The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with keep trying to give answers, but they don't even know the questions we're asking. The church is the most vocal, political voice against immigration. Some churches still don't believe that worship was the actual Do you understand how repeated good news from the majority of people on the church end up going to hell? Like, how is that actually It seems like so much of the church's focus Anti-critical thinking, homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world. (sighs) The church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy. And today, actually, I think this is the first time we have two guests on here. I'm joined by Victoria Robb Powers and Cameron Vickery. And Victoria is the senior pastor at Royal Lane Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, and is the first female pastor, first female to pastor a Baptist church in the DFW Metroplex. You'll have to explain to me what that means, the DFW Metroplex. Texas, for me, is still like a foreign country. I've been there once as a kid, and I'm like, I don't get it. I just hear about it in the news a lot. So um, she's a graduate of Baylor University and Bright Divinity School at TCU in Fort Worth. Victoria lives with her husband and three children in Lake Highlands, and she loves to read, write, preach, and teach. And, you know, I'm not even reading off a thing right now. This is all just top of the head. This is all just memory. And Cameron is a graduate of Furman University and Wake Forest University School of Divinity. And she currently works for Fellowship Southwest, sharing stories of ministry and mission along the U.S.-Mexico border and advocating for migrants. She's also passionate about public public education and co-founded a nonprofit called Root Ed, galvanizing parents of public school children to tell their stories and become advocates. Cameron lives in San Antonio with her family. Um, Before we begin, both of you, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me personally and with all the listeners to the podcast today. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, those are those are awesome. Just even reading those short bios, I'm I'm really glad we're able to make this happen. And it even gives a little bit of life to the book that we're going to talk about soon. Um, their new book, which we are going to get into. But first, you know, like we share, we talked just a sec before, you know, I clicked record, you know, this our stories are not passive backgrounds for whatever content, you know, we provide or whatever work we do, right? I'm the medium is the message, you know, our stories, the words we have are always embodied through everything we've been through, right? The people in our lives speak through us sometimes, whether we want them to or not, you know, people are, our stories, our histories are arising through us all the time. And so, you know, our journeys are important and to have 
to not only women who are leaders here, but women who are pastors. Like I love for people to hear those stories because we we might take it for granted, but I think for some people that those might be still new things. They may not, may have never had a woman pastor. They may have may never been a part of a church with women who are leading in those capacities. And so I think the I'm interested in how you both got here. I'm like, are these good youth group kids who just keep going? Is the, I would assume with some of the divinity schools and educations you've got and things you were saying, there's probably some directions you went in. People may have not went wanted you to go in. I don't know exactly because I don't know the story. So you can choose whoever starts to share, go off of each other. But what is what are some a couple of those bigger pictures zoomed out? This is how I got to seminary. This is how I got to this role. So yeah, I would love for the listeners to hear a bit about those journeys. Sure. Um, Well, this is Victoria. I grew up in a conservative, evangelical, fundamentalist, Southern Baptist tradition. Nice. Uh, Yes. So (laughs) you know what that means, that story, you know, in and of itself, just saying that. But, you know, I'll tell you from a young age, I always loved the church. I really mm, did. Awesome. And, and I've even though my journey has taken me pretty far from the tradition I grew up in, I'm able where I am now to look back and still hold some gratitude for mm. that tradition. Mm. Because I will say in, in the church that I grew up in, I really, I learned to love God in that church. Mm. I learned to be theologically curious uh, I learned to love the Bible. I mm. learned to love Jesus. I mean, there's a lot of things that are still true about me that I inherited in that tradition. Uh, I was a part of that tradition my whole upbringing. Um, when I was 16, I remember feeling a clear sense of call to ministry, but I didn't really know what that meant. I think for me, mm. it just It was sort of a, I'm going to trust my passion as my purpose. And Mm. I'm very passionate about the church and I'm passionate about scripture and I'm passionate about God. So somehow that must, that must fit with what my purpose is. And so like a good Baptist, I walked the aisle after a service and told my pastor, you know, I feel called to vocational ministry and he shared it with the church and and the church celebrated that. But Mm. I do remember meeting with him afterwards and him sort of sharing with me what my options were, knowing that mm. I wanted to be in ministry, and they were really limited. But at the time, mm. I didn't know they were limited because I didn't know any different. Sure. You know, we talked about women's ministry, children's ministry, kids' ministry, uh, missions, but you know, we never talked about preaching or being behind a pulpit or leading a congregation. It just wasn't on the table. Mm. But again, I didn't. I didn't feel limited in that. Mm. I went to Baylor, which is a Baptist school in Texas. Um, it made sense. I could major in religion there. I could sort of learn more about my call and and prepare for that at Baylor. And I was a sophomore in college and I learned in one of my religion classes, we were talking about um, the art and craft of preaching. And I learned about a female senior pastor in town mm. um, of a Baptist church. And I was so... Um, confused by that because I didn't, I didn't know that was a possibility, not only in my own tradition, but really in any tradition. Mm. (laughs) So I, I, at some point that confusion turned into a curiosity and I went one Sunday to hear her preach and she was phenomenal. And, you know, you, we said this earlier before we started recording, you can't be what you can't see. Mm. And there was something about seeing her that helped me realize sort of the full potential of my own call. 
Like, mm-hmm. oh, I, I could maybe do that too. I also learned that there were different kind of Baptists. So that's really important to say because mm-hmm. Kim and I both are Baptist ministers, mm-hmm. but we're a different kind of Baptist than mm-hmm. what most people think about, at least in our geographical landscape in Texas. Sure. When you hear the word Baptist, that typically means to them the conservative evangelical fundamentalist mm-hmm. type which were not. And it was that experience that I learned, oh, there are different types of Baptists and I don't have to jettison my tradition entirely to live more fully into my call. So I went from there to divinity school, worked for a couple of years as a chaplain, and then um, got married. And and we started a family here in Dallas. Our parents are here. We've got a lot of community support. And, you know, we sort of decided that Dallas is going to be home for us. This is where we want to raise our children. Well, at that point, I was I was a chaplain in a hospital system, and and really it became clear to me I belong in parish ministry. I want mm. to be in the church, but there are about two, maybe three, progressive Baptist churches in the Dallas Fort Worth metroplex. That's when we mm. said DFW metroplex. That's basically mm. Dallas and Fort Worth are huge cities, but they're they're close enough that we sort of call it a metroplex. So it's a, mm. a really big metropolitan area. So I had very few options for where mm. to go. And of those three progressive churches, there were no um, mm. no positions available for me. Mm. So oddly enough, I worked in the United Methodist Church for eight years, but mm. always as a Baptist. They created space for me. I served by extension of another denomination. And I'm so grateful to the Methodist mm. Church for recognizing my gifts and being willing to create space for me to use them. But for years, I was waiting and hoping that maybe there would be a homecoming for me where I could return Mm. to my own tradition. So in January of this last year, Royal Lane Baptist Church, one of those three, they had an open pulpit. Their pastor left and they started a search committee. And um, I began January 2nd of this year. So I'm nine months in. But it's been a real gift to me to return to my own tradition and and to serve as a senior pastor and to stand behind a pulpit. And I'm very mindful every Sunday of the little girls in our church and mm. what it means for them to see me do what I do. Mm. I mean, they may they may never do it or want to do it, but at least they know they can do it, that it's a possibility mm. for them. I didn't know that till I was 20 years mm. old. Mm. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of a long story, yeah. but some background as to how I got to where I am. Yeah, no, that's so great. And, and, you know, I, I have, you know, so much love for, for pastors and for clergy, you know, I don't, I don't know, just, I think like I, we follow like the accounts on Instagram, you know, follow each other, but like my wife and I were church planners. And so we started a church in this neighborhood about a little bit over 10 years ago and we led it together for about 10 years. And we just transitioned out of that role like a year ago, basically a little bit longer than a year, like in last May or whatever. And so the unique beauty, struggle, challenges, complexity, dual relationships, multidimensional weirdness, you navigate all the time while you're stepping into your calling. There is a thing, if you don't pass through, you just can't get it, you know, in terms of the the, the weight of it, you know, the invisible burden you kick, et cetera, all those things. So knowing the challenges and, but also, also loving the church, you know, as well. Like I just love hearing people who love the church and are committed to it, especially for people who I think are helping create the future of like where I want to go, you know, and where I think a lot of people need to go. And also, you know, to know and to experience, you know, the gratefulness for the past, you know, that phrase transcending and including has become more known to people over the years, you know, 
to transcend what's come, what's come before, but to include it and to hear like, of course, if we talked further, you're going to have your critiques. You know, of course, I'm sure there's things along the way with what you've read to get you to where you are that you're not supposed to read. And of, like, of course, you're going to it's it's amazing to look back and be like, I don't even agree with that sermon from 15 years ago. But yet somehow that helped me take the next step to let, lead me to where I am to have, you know, what I'm saying like that inclusion of the journey is so powerful. And it's something I so want for so many people now. So that's not appreciate you sharing that. That's that's awesome. Yeah. And also you shared it in such a smooth way. Like, no problems. Everyone was super supportive just along the way. It's pretty easy. Yeah. No, don't be misled. <laughs> there were, there were some bumps <laughs> along the way for sure. But. And for Cameron, for you, I would love for the listeners to hear a similar, you know, moving into the role that you have now, you know, a bit of that background that makes sense of it. So it's really cool to kind of put Victoria's story next to mine because we had very different experiences Mm -hmm. growing up in the church. Um, My dad is a pastor or was, Mm. he retired recently. Mm. Um, And he also in the Baptist tradition. um, Mm. And so when I was a child, he actually led um, the church that he was a pastor of in Dallas through a process of leaving the Southern Baptist convention, Mm. mainly over the issue of women in leadership. Mm. He really believed that women are fully called and fully equipped to be pastor mm-hmm. in the same way that men are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is the setting that I grew up in. That's awesome. And he tells a story that um, when I was a little girl, I think he was tucking me into bed one evening and I said to him, daddy, can I, when I grow up, can I be a church helper too? Mm. And he was emotional and so excited that his little girl wanted to be a pastor. And Mm. he kind of like, you know, really emoted about this, you know, with me. Mm, And mm. and I was like, well, all I meant, like, all I meant was that I wanted to help pass the offering plate to be an usher. (laughs) 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 But he was just, he was, um, so committed always to forging a path for women in ministry. And that really shaped a lot of his career and the way that he pastored. And he um, had a mentorship program and, and trained young women. Um, mm. Victoria was a mentor. Um, she, oh, she was cool. Victoria's actually, yeah, she knows my dad really well. Um, and so I grew up also as a typical pastor's kid, always in the church. And I had a very positive and healthy experience. Mm. Um, I think there's a reputation of pastor's kids that they're going to be wild and kind of reject the church. And uh, that really wasn't my story. Mm. I felt always very um, supported by the Mm. church and held and sustained and loved. And um, I'm very grateful to that experience. They let me be who I was always. And um, so, you know, I I did have a great love for the church and, um, also there, like Victoria, I learned to love the Bible and I learned to care about the least of these. And mm. that's where I learned about social justice. And that really shaped my future and my vocation. And so I also went to seminary. Um, I, I have never felt the call to be a pastor. I have always felt called to kind of ministry outside the walls of the church. Mm, gotcha. Um, and so I've landed more in the nonprofit world. Okay. Um, so I work for an organization that is advocacy and missions focused. 
Mm. And so we do a lot of social justice work and helping churches kind of figure out how to serve their communities and serve people um, and do mission work and advocacy. Um, it's been, it's been really a wonderful experience, but that's, that's kind of where my calling has led me. Mm. Um, but with the same understanding as Victoria, that, um, we need women's voices mm. in the church and in the pulpit. So I'm very involved in my church. My mm. husband is the pastor of our mm. church. <laughs> um, and so my kids, I have three daughters and my kids, um, have, you know, two parents who are ministers and both mm. of the grandfathers are pastors. Wow. Pastors. Um, so, you know, I may not have been the traditional PK who rebelled, but I'm sure that some of my children will be. <laughs> <laughs> um, but either way, we, um, we are very intentional, especially because they hear their dad preach most Sundays. Um, we're very intentional about exposing them to women in leadership mm. in the church mm. and women preachers. And it's another reason that I'm extra grateful for this friendship with Victoria, because they see her as one of their pastors too. And mm. they want, they, you know, they want to be just like her. Um, mm. My youngest daughter is eight and she says that she wants to be a pastor one day. Wow. And I'm so grateful that they um, know that that's something that is available to them. Mm. Mm. That's so cool. Well, that's, I think, you know, especially now the past five years, you know, where there's so much more, public awareness of and attention to you know just just the you know spiritual trauma religious hurt and all these real things that so many people have gone through and it's all legitimate and it's valid and it's it's tough you know to hear all that you know and to know what people go through but it's cool for me to hear because I didn't grow up with like any awareness of anything evangelical at all. I didn't know anything about that. So I didn't have that those types of experiences growing up. So you hear more at least, you know, in the kind of weird, very niche world that we live in of like social media and Christians and writers, you know, in that type of space, it's more of like the critiques and the the struggle of it, which I totally get. But I love hearing that where it's like, sure, you know, everyone's going to have no one fully aligns with any one thing or institution 100%, but like to have, you know, parents, you know, and a father who's a pastor, you know, being a light for the path, you know, and for both of you to have positive experiences. That's so awesome. I love hearing that, you know, because to me, it's such a healthy thing to honor that, but obviously to keep growing and to keep evolving in the way that you both have, you know, as leaders into the future, but to have these good experiences, like it's weird for me where when we transition out of a role, I was like, oh, like my kids won't have any conscious memory of like, me preaching all the time which is crazy you're like i you do that like every day or every week for like all nine years and my kids will have like no memory of that you know but to see the the positive experience and even how they carry that sometimes i love hearing that Here, here's a you know for the so for the book which i didn't mention for, for the listeners in the book they just wrote is a children's book called my love god is everywhere Here's my question, right? We hear some of the stories, pastoring, leading, doing the work in nonprofits, being advocates for justice. Where is the engine? What is that core desire of why take all of the wisdom and knowledge you both have, you know, that you both express in, in different concrete ways? What is the high value? You know, what is the drive for a children's book? you know, right now, which like, I'm sure I can take guesses and assume, you know, a lot of good things, but for people to hear, where did that come from? And why do you see that as, as so valuable and important right now? 
Well, um, both of us just told you a lot about what we grew up hearing. And like we've been saying, that is so um, foundational to Mm. what you hear as a child really shapes who you're going to become, I think. And so Mm. we wanted to go ahead and start at the very beginning. Um, So I mentioned that I went to divinity school and theology was really my niche. It was really Mm. my passion. I love theology. And what's cool about doing theology for kids is I'm not a poet. I'm not a a poetry writer, but I I do feel like it's got to be a similar thing where you start with these really big, complex topics and you just whittle them down to the very essential, um, the very barest that you can possibly get it to. Um, Mm. And that's kind of what it's like to do theology for kids and to write a children's book is, you know, you start with these really big questions, these really big topics and just see like, what is the most foundational, um, the the least amount of words, the, you know, um, Mm. and, and translate that for kids. Um, And we really wanted to write something that children could read at an early age and know without a doubt that God is always with them. Mm. Uh, and that they wouldn't have to grow up with a theology or reading books about God that would, that they would later have to kind of unravel and heal Mm. from. Mm. Mm. Yeah. um, On a practical level, one of the reasons we wrote the book is because as moms and ministers, we get asked frequently by other parents Mm. resources, you know, they want to raise their children in the Christian faith. So they ask us for books that we recommend and unfortunately, I, I didn't really have a lot of books that I felt comfortable recommending to families, mm. um, you know, that that supported a theology I could stand behind. So mm. I had reached out to Cameron and and thinking maybe she had some and she didn't. And that's sort of where the idea came from is she said, maybe we should write a book. Mm. And so, you know, just practically, that's why we did it is we, we realized there's a need. There's a need for good, inclusive, safe, progressive mm you know, Mm. books about faith for kids and there's not enough of them out there. So practically, you know, that's sort of what inspired us to do this. And then, um, you know, Cameron's the one who, she said something to me one time that uh, I think really sort of led us to why we chose sort of the topic of God's presence. I mean, we knew we wanted to write a foundational theology book for kids, Mm. but we could talk about all kinds of things. Mm. Why focus on God's omnipresence, God being Mm. everywhere and, you know, one of the reasons is because God's at, children are really curious about God's location and where, where God lives. Is God in the sky? Is God in my heart? Is God in the corner of my room? You know, where is God? But also the thing that Cameron had said to me was, you know, oftentimes we emphasize so much the presence of God's power, you know, God being all powerful and in control. And that can create a lot of challenges and problems for children later in life when they experience hardship. It's sort of like, well, how does that make sense? If God's in control, why did God let this happen? You know, it creates a lot of confusion about God's goodness. And so she said, you know, we sh- we need to talk less about the presence of God's power and more about the power of God's presence and how it is that regardless of what that, you see that, sorry to interrupt, but you know, that's when, you know, even if you're not preaching all the time, when you're a preacher's kid, those turn, those turns of phrases, those, those words right there. I love for me. I love one liners. I'm like, damn it. It's just so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
but that, I mean, that sort of, it, it was like, that's it, right? That's what our children need. They need to, they need to hear less about God's all powerful and in control and big and mighty, which, which I'm not saying isn't true, but I think it's more sustaining for us as people to rest more on the, the promise that God is just always present in mm. all circumstances, in all things. So, you know, when these things happen, I'm not saying they won't create, they won't be problematic to children as they wonder about God, but, you know, they're thinking less about why did God let this happen and more about, oh, I, I know that God is here no matter mm. what. I know that God mm. is here. So that's, mm. um, that's why we went the route in, of talking about God's presence. Mm. Yeah, I love the practicality of like, well, we wrote a book because there just aren't really many you feel comfortable recommending. It's I totally get that, but it's so sad, you know, when you have that with people, how hard it is to find resources. Because I think the way we've been trained, we're like, I can work with that because I'm going to change these words on the spot for the sake of my child's, you know, psychological well-being. And so you can do it, but you're like, it, I just couldn't, you know, there's too many things there, even though they're kids like that would be, I can't, I can't recommend that, you know? Yes. Well, and um, one of the yeah. gifts, one of the gifts, Kevin, that I think Cameron and I have found in this whole process is the discovery that the well is not as dry as we thought it was, that mm, come to mm. find out there actually are a lot of great resources mm. for kids about faith. We just didn't know about them. And that's been the joy of finding people like you and others on you know social media and realizing oh look at all these books so you know one of the things we try to do on our you know social media on Instagram is also highlight other books mm. other than our own because mm. that has been such a joy to find out and we just got to let people know where you can find these books and and push them out so and and for people listening in for whoever's listening who has kids you may already be wondering about this, but so I'm gonna ask the question on behalf of my anticipation for what people are thinking. Married, leading, preaching, leading nonprofits, doing all this exciting work. You have kids. Do you ever get tired? Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, let me. You know, I say that jokingly, but like. I just had to accept like the last five years after having two, I'm like, I just can't read. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm like, I don't, at nighttime, if I read four pages now, I feel like I accomplished something where, you know, when you're in grad school and you're in seminary, you're like a book every two to three days, yeah. you know, but how, so how do you, on the practical, you're both not, not just when I mistakenly said both pastors, but both people who are giving themselves fully to this world for the sake of justice, for the sake of healing, right? In this way of Jesus we're on. How do you, in the midst of everything, right? Not just the challenges, the fatigue kids. How do you keep having, not just the physical energy, we can joke around about that, but I think it's important for leaders as we, as we grow older. Like, I think one of the most courageous and most challenging things we can do is keep our heart open to keep caring. I feel like for me, like I'm a, for people who work with the Enneagram, like I'm an Enneagram five. And so a part, which is like, I had a very unexpected like role as like a lead pastor. That is not my natural thing. It's like, it was a lot. I did. I can't imagine people doing multiple services. I would do one a week and I was like, I'm dead after like, I'm so fried, like energy wise. But I think 
I get why so many people are cynical. I get why people are bitter. I get why it's easy to be angry because it requires so much to keep your heart open and to keep caring and to keep having hope, you know? So to keep leading and pastoring and now writing children's books, like what for you has been a part of your process to keep your hearts open wide enough to keep caring along the way? Yeah, well... (laughs) I resonate with what you're talking about with compassion fatigue a little mm. bit. Um, I work for this nonprofit and here are our four issues that we focus most of our work on immigration, hunger, racial justice, mm. and indigenous communities. So talk about just an endless, you know, um, mm. amount of needs and tragic stories and, um, so much work to be done. Um, it can be sometimes very demoralizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that the reason I keep doing this work and the reason that I love it is the people um, mm. that I get to meet and work with. And there's there's just so much hope to be found in mm. those places. And in fact, that is where I see God a lot mm. uh, is in, you know, kind of communities that are suffering. Um, so anyway, all that to say, yes, it's hard. (laughs) It's hard to keep going. It's tiring to be parents. It's tiring to be full-time, um, to have full-time jobs and full-time families and to write a book on the side. Um, it did take us a long time (laughs) to Mm. write the book, but for me, I found that always having this question on my mind of where is God? And thinking about God's presence has been, has become kind of a spiritual practice for me. That's been very fulfilling um, and healing. So, you know, it's made me a lot more mindful about where I see God outside and in nature. It's Mm. made me go outside more and spend more time um, just in creation. It's made me care about creation more. Um, And so you know, it's been just personally a real gift and a real source of energy to have this question on my mind all the time. And I think just also my friendship with Victoria has been a blessing and a a way to um, always have someone that kind of understands, you know, what, what we're going through. And um, I think that friendships and relationships are really important in ministry, especially Mm. because it can be very lonely. Mm, yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. You know, I, um, it's interesting. I, I feel like the book in a lot of ways helped sustain my ministry in the church because it was such an outlet for creativity and joy and passion. Mm. And I think that, you know, that's so important to dedicate time to doing the things that fill you up. And definitely moments along the way where it just felt like I don't have time to be doing this. I'm raising Mm. three children. I have a full-time job serving as a senior pastor of a church. I'm writing sermons weekly. I serve on a number of boards. I'm just Mm. like, we don't have time for the things that bring us pleasure, (laughs) but I'm learning that, um, I don't, that one, it's true. You, you don't have the time for that unless you make the time for that. So you Mm. actually have to prioritize time spent doing something that you love, that's actually um, good for your just health overall. And so doing this project, even though there were times it felt like 
you know, I shouldn't give an extra hour to this. I should do something else. It was time well spent because it gave me so much joy and it, it's so life-giving to me. The whole thing mm-hmm. has been life-giving mm-hmm. that it's really helped sustain the other things that I do. So I would say, yeah, for anybody in ministry or just in life in general, compa- compassion fatigue is real. It's hard to do the kind of work that we do, which is why it's so important to prioritize the things that bring you delight mm. <laughs> because that also helps you remember that, um, the harsh realities of life are not the only realities of life, that there's a lot of beauty mm. in it too. And this whole book, the friendship, the everything has just been a reminder about the the gifts and beauty and joy of life, which helps me keep going when you face mm. all those things too. So, mm. yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. That's, uh, there's definitely wisdom there and there, there's a line and, you know, like I said, I don't read every once in a while, though I will actually finish a book. And within the past few years, <clears throat> one of the books, maybe the book that stands out to me the most that I've read, you know, books are when you ask people like what books, it's very stage of life, season of life. You know, it's not just this is the best book ever. It's no, that was the best book that was solidifying, giving me a sense of solidarity or calling me forward. It's usually something there you can see like later on from my perspective, you know, why certain books are so powerful at times. But Mirabai Starr's book, Wild Mercy, the past few years, I'm just like, this is special. Mm-hmm. You know, what she's what she's saying right now. And I think for me and who I resonate with when it comes to wisdom teachers is like, when people are just sharing information, I'm like, anybody can do that. I mean, it takes skill to write. Don't get me wrong. It's very difficult. But it's the embodied wisdom where you're like, they don't just teach that, but they know that. That's to me, like what speaks to me the most. And when I read her, when I read other writers, I'm like, they are that, you know what they're saying. And one line in, in that book that I love is she talks, she actually talks about, you know, the, what she calls a reunion of like the cross and resurrection. But then she goes on to talk about how it's like a model for us. And I forget how she says it for us to keep our heart open, despite every reason not to. Mm-hmm. And that line for me is like, because there are those reasons you know, leading, like what, what you're describing Cameron, like the four issues. And that's not even taking into consideration working with those areas of focus in the context we're in right now, you know, the concreteness of life and media and the past few years and how things have been elevated and intensive intensified in so many ways, you know, that is increasing all of those things when it comes to caring. So I think that's so important for people to hear, you know, from leaders is it's not, how do you keep going? It's how do you keep caring? Cause we know people who keep going, but you lose yourself, your heart, your energy along the way. And all of a sudden another person's burnt out, overwhelmed and unhealthy. And I guess for me, my heart for leaders all the time is like, how do we keep doing this and maintain our own joy and our own, like, this is still good though you know, all of this, you know, especially raising kids, you know, how do I look at my daughter at her first concert? Cause we took our kids to like a concert from this famous Hawaiian musician on Saturday night. It was their first big show. And it's like, how do I look at her looking at a stage and just be for me, like be present enough to be like this, this, this is it, you know, this is everything right now. And that's, that's what I love to see is leaders who keep leading well, but also for us, you know, for you to keep enjoying that's to me, that's so it's such an important thing. So I appreciate you both sharing that. So some of the practical stuff, you know, as parents, pastors and leaders, you know, with the book, you know, 
like how when you think about grief and you think about struggle, you know, for kids, right? And you don't want to just utter a cliche of like, well, you know, God's in control, or maybe that is appropriate at times. I'm not saying it's not developmentally, but you know, how how do you approach the topic of, you know, the enduring ever-present presence of God in times of death and loss as our kids get older? and ask questions and deal with things themselves, you know, that are hard. Like my daughter just went through, she's in first grade. She finished kindergarten. I was like, damn, kindergarten is more complex than I thought. Like (laughs) friends and stuff. I'm like, damn, I didn't know it was going to be like this. (laughs) But how do you, you know, how do you, how would you guide people? Or where would the, how would the book help us during times of loss and grief or challenging things with, with the, with the vision of God that is expressed through the book? Well, my daughter asked me recently, this is after we wrote the book and it just confirmed for me how important these messages Mm. are. She said, mom, I don't get it. And by the way, she was asking me this while she was doing cartwheels in the backyard. Of course. Watch me do this cartwheel. And mom, I have a question. Like, you know, this is when they ask these deep questions when you, (laughs) (laughs) you know, my daughter did a cartwheel. She looked at me. She's like, you know, we're all going to die one day. right? Exactly. (laughs) Something about going upside down makes all the deep questions. (laughs) Um, But she said, mom, I don't get it. If God loves us, why does God let such bad things happen? Mm. And I took just a second, which I think is always good advice. Don't just immediately answer those kinds of questions, right? But I was ready for this one. Mm. I said, oh, God doesn't. Mm. You know, you're right. You have the answer. You you know that God loves you. You know that God is good. And And you also see that bad things happen, that, you know, life has some tragedies. And yes, Mm. there's going to be some really difficult times that we go through. And sometimes bad things happen. Um, but it's not God. God isn't doing that to us, mm. letting that happen necessarily. Mm. God is there with us when we go through those times and God will help you get through those times. So, you know, in the Psalms, um, we see a lot of this. We see the psalmists asking God, where are you when something bad happens? But then the psalmists also say, God is our refuge and strength an ever-present help in trouble. And so we're not told that trouble doesn't come, but we are told that God is present with us there and um, and is a refuge and a strength to help us get through those times. Um, and so I always just remind my children that um, God loves us and that God is a good God and mm. wants good things for us. And so sometimes there are these mysteries that we don't, don't know how to answer or how to solve. And that question of theodicy, why does, why do bad things happen to good people? Um, we're all going to be wondering that. I still wonder that, but I do mm. know that it's not that God is responsible. It's that God is how we get through those things. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I, um, that we have in the book, a question, the daughter asks her mother at one point, is God there when I'm happy or there when I'm sad? Mm. And that page was really important to us. Uh, it gets at the question you're asking, Kevin, about, you know, in grief and despair, when tragic things happen, you know, is God there? Where is God? I grew up, like I said, in a in a tradition of a of a particular kind uh, that taught me, you know, that that God that focused on that part about God 
being all powerful and in control. And, you know, so the only thing I, that I was offered in those moments was, you know, sometimes we just don't know things. It's just a mystery why God lets these things happen. It was never suggested to me that maybe God doesn't let these things happen. And another thing that was never suggested to me was that God gets sad too. And we Mm. put that book really intentionally because I didn't come across that concept or even that possibility of thinking until I was in seminary. Mm. And um, I, William Sloan Coffin, you may know him. He was the Mm. longtime pastor at uh, Riverside Church in New York City, famous American theologian. Uh, he lost his son tragically um, when his son was really young, he in a in a terrible car accident. And um, he at the he gave the eulogy for his son at, at the funeral service and um, it was required reading in one of my theology classes. And he talked a lot about all the empty platitudes people offered him about, you know, just I don't, I don't know, just all the things, horrific things you can imagine people say mm-hmm. when someone dies about, you know, God's ways are a mystery and we don't know. And in the eulogy, he said, you know, there's just something within me that's convinced that the moment my son died, God's heart was the first of all of our hearts to break. Mm-hmm. And I, that was so liberating for me, this, uh, at, this concept that God um, too is grieved by the injustices of life and that you know, it is always contrary to that death in and of itself is always contrary to God's good purposes. Right. And so I, I, I just, it provided me a lot of comfort in that time. And and so we tried to reduce that, you know, that big concept in the book by just suggesting to children that, that God is there when you're sad, um, well, you know, holding on to you when you feel blue, grieving alongside you because God gets sad too, mm-hmm. you know, that was our way of sort of planting that seed for them that, you know, it it might not reconcile or answer the why question, but at least it provides an assurance that God is there and God is still good. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah. And also even hearing some of this, which, you know, I, I, knowing there are like some, some good resources, maybe you might know of more than I do when it comes to children's books, but, you know, we have some good stuff in the house, you know, that I, that I love for the kids, some really cool things. Um, but there's some of the answers that I'm hearing from you and some of the ways you approach it where I'm like, that's similar to what I've said before. So it's, it's, it's just cool to, I think that's just natural with where we've grown or whatever shared sensibilities we might have of how we see Jesus, the universe and humanity and the, that, that like parental pastoral translating you know, like you said, Cameron, like dis- distilling everything down as simple as you can to like translate that for your kids. Well, you know, and that to me, there's some there's some wisdom there. And that's the I think people discovering more and more the the wisdom of like de- developmental maps for de- human development for adults as well and stages of consciousness theories. But you're like, there's things that are appropriate to say to kids at this age, as you're solidifying that sense of ego strength or whatever here, where at 19, if I have that conversation with my daughter, it's going to be different. It's like, well, were you lying? I'm like, no, I was saying what was, was good and healthy for you at six, mm-hmm. you know, like the Noah's Ark story at six will be different from how we talk about it at 16 or 17, perhaps, you know, cause it's a different place. And I think books like this, helping people see the, the wisdom of, our children inheriting a faith that is not a stereotypical, like fear-based, 
you know, insurance for an afterlife, but like, no, this isn't about being scared of anything. It's about being invited into mm-hmm. what we see as this is the story. Like this yeah. is the greatest story, you know? So what do you, what do you, you know, to bring it down into a personal sense, you both have three kids. Yeah. Three. Okay. So we had two and I was like, it's yeah. a lot. <laughs> well, yeah. I knew I like, so my wife and I met when we were 16, like we grew up in Los Angeles and like we moved out here for college, basically. It's a, there's a lot, a very long story to that, as you can imagine. But at 18, we graduated, I graduated high school in 2003. But at that point we were writing letters like letters with pencil on a paper, you know, to each other to like communicate at times. And she was in Hawaii a year ahead of me for school and I was still in high school. And I remember my wife wrote me a letter and on it was like us in the future in Hawaii. And it was like her, me, a daughter and a son. And the daughter said, Michaela, and the son's name is true. And that's actually our family now. What? <laughs> that's wild. Cause I, I, my daughter, my wife said, like, oh, if we have a daughter, I, I like, even back then I would want to name her Michaela. And at 18, this is through my own experiences. I was like, if I ever have a son, I'm going to name him true. T R U E. I never heard of the name before for a person later on, right before we had our, our son, I know one of the Chloe Kardashian named her daughter true. And I was honestly like, I can accept and forgive things very quickly. This is taking me a couple of days because I'm kind of pissed about this. Uh, <laughs> anytime I tell someone my son's name, they're going to be like, oh, you mean like, and I'm like, oh, so. But, you know, it is the things that we we do publicly, they're always so personal, you know? And now with kids and with your own experience, what do you really, I'm just, you know, for people to hear like you're these leaders, you do so much in the world. There's these broad social things we care about, we fight for. Now we're in the home, we have children. What do you really want for your kids? You know, when you just think about them growing up, you know, as they mature into adolescence and teenagers and go off, you're like, man, I just, I want my kids to know this. I really want my kids to trust this. I want my kids to take these kinds of risks in life. You know, what are a few of those things just as we talk right now, you're like, I really want this for my kids. Well, we um, have three things that we tell our kids every Mm -hmm. day when we drop them off. And I guess they, they're the three things that we want most for them, which is to be Girl, kind. The Bible is the Bible is the inherent word of God. <laughs> oh, yes, exactly. God is in control and all powerful. Yes. No, I know as a pastor, actually, none of these are explicitly faith-based, but they're all mm. faith-formed. Mm. But we say the three things we tell them is be kind, be honest, be you. Mm. And I, you know, I want most for my children to be kind, to be compassionate, to be um, mindful of other people to be caring, generous. I mean, I feel like all of that's wrapped up in what it means Mm. to be kind. I want them to be honest, you know, to tell the truth in a world that lives in illusions. You know, I want them to speak honestly and truthfully, uh, for themselves, but on behalf of other people. And I want them to be them, you know, be you, be whoever it is that you are. Um, you know, I, I, pray frequently that they would um, grow to be confident in who they are as a child of God. You Mm. know, like, I I don't know who they'll be, how they'll understand themselves, but I I hope they feel the freedom in in all places to just be themselves. Mm. 
And so those are the, that's, I guess, the three things I want most for my kids mm, is mm. be kind, be honest, be you. It's mm, yeah. awesome. That's a book title too. <laughs> Maybe that'll be our next <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's great. And for I, you, Cameron? Mine are so similar. Um, mm. Victoria and I have never talked about that, but I have oh, right here. It, you can't mm. read it, but those are our three house rules. And they are be kind to your sisters. I have all girls. Uh, respect your parents and always tell the truth. Um, and so those are not the things that I hope the most for them that they would respect their parents, but, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, but those are very similar, um, values, the kindness, the truth, um, that they would always carry with them and, um, not be afraid to be honest and be truthful. Um, I would also say that I simply hope that, um, especially as girls, all three of mine are girls, and that they really value who they are and their character as children of God. Um, Mm. and that they understand that they are so beautiful, no matter what they look like on the outside. Um, but that they have that confidence that God made them exactly how they were meant to be. Um, and that they have a purpose and that God has a purpose for them. Um, and that they can do anything they want to do, you know, Mm. as girls, as women. So Mm. Those are, mm. those are some things that are important to us. Mm-hmm. So, so you said you have all three are, are all daughters. Yes. And mine are a bit ahead of your, yours, Kevin's and Victoria's they're 13 and 11 and eight. Mm. And so we're really kind of coming into that, the teenage um, phase of life. And mm. boy, I, you know, people always said like, Ooh, girls, you're gonna, you've got it. You, you, you're in for it. Mm. <laughs> and until really this past spring, I just thought that's ridiculous. And and Mm. I still, I still do because I love teenagers. I work with Mm. them at church. Um, but when my daughter turned 13 in May, it is like a light bulb switched or flip switched and she's a different person. Mm. (laughs) So it is really going to be interesting. And my 11 year old is, um, just developmentally really close to her. So I feel Mm. like there's through adolescence right at the same pace so it's two at once and um yeah it's gonna be a lot it's gonna be a lot but i'm really up for the challenge i'm excited Mm. about teenagers are a lot of fun Mm -hmm. they do come with their um you know different attitudes um Mm. a lot of opinions but i wouldn't want it any other way i would want Mm. them to fully challenging and what's the age of your kids victoria Seven, five, and two. Okay, so yeah, you guys are definitely in different stages then, for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. the complexity of a six, almost seven-year-old in first grade, I'm like, it's all one stage at a time because the thought of like the older 13 stuff and I was like, you know, I was like a troubled kid when I was young, you know, I was like a troubled youth, you know, labeled as a kid. So like my wife was very sheltered and very innocent when she was young, you know, mm-hmm. and I was not. You know, I had my other issues that really quickly. So for me, I've saw enough at a young age where I'm like, this can go super left really fast. But also I have this like general, it's not grounded. It's just, you know, these thoughts we carry. You're like, there's also a general truth. I think of like the better you love your kids, the longer they stay young. Mm -hmm. Because when I see some friends of mine out here, one of my best friends, Larry, I'm looking at his son. I'm like, I think the lot, when you love your kids, well, they stay, they can stay young. It's not, it's not universal. It's not always, but like, cause home is safe. 
you know, this is good. You know, this is, it's a different experience than for kids who are just like running off, you know, and they don't have that. It's just a different experience of life, you know, and I always see great, it's a great gift to love your kids. Well, yeah. you know, it's even like sight. Yeah. Yeah. Please. I was, um, it's just interesting. You say that I had lunch a couple months ago with a woman from our church who has like the most delightful children. They're ones like, I think a senior in high school, there's a sophomore in college and they're just incredible young human beings. And I asked her, you know, like how, like, what did you do thinking she was going to tell me like, well, we limited screen time, you know, to an hour a day. And these are the rules we set and they couldn't do this. They couldn't do that. Or we made sure that we did this, or we always ate around the table as a family or, you know, just what I just like, tell me, I want, you know, want this <laughs> for my kids. And she said, you know what, Victoria, I really, I don't know that we did anything other than we really, really enjoyed them. Mm. We just enjoyed them, enjoyed mm. being with them, enjoyed spending. We just took so much delight in being a family and mm. that's really it. And I just think about that all the time. Like sometimes mm. they watch too much TV. A lot of times they eat at our kitchen counter and we don't all eat together as a family. We do all these things, but if I can just be intentional about delighting in them and, you know, spending time together and like, then I think it's going to be all right. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yes, they yes. know that they're liked by you. Totally. Yes, that you like yes. them. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I definitely, there's so many things over the years that I've learned, not from like reading, but from just watching my wife live her life. Like my wife's mm -hmm. a very courageous person and she takes risks and works extremely hard and is extremely driven like i learned how to risk when i was young from watching her you know like wow. yeah and i remember like i remember this distinctive moment where i was like in i went to fuller theological seminary like i don't know 10 15 years ago or something and uh i remember being in whatever extra bedroom we had now you know i'm really reading so much at that point and i loved it but i was reading in our room probably some you know some very complex book about compassion or who like a theology of hospitality or what who knows it's all good stuff and as i'm reading it my wife was just in the other room listening and present to a person doing the thing i as a man and an enneagram fiver in my head it's like let me just read and learn about and i'm like my wife's just doing the things that I'm taking all this time to read about. And I can probably communicate hopefully well, and probably am not where my wife is when it comes to embodying it, you know? So I always just thought that was funny. I was like, I'm an idiot just watching her, you know, do that. But the delight in the kids where I'm like, she just keeps on having so much fun. dude. not she really like, I'm fried. Like I'm tired at this point, but like seeing her of like, just the the delighting in i think that is a huge thing i think when when you said that cameron the liking part not do you just manage a household and work hard but like do you like and am i desired here you know what i'm saying that's such a huge thing um awesome. this is before i want you guys to share about reverend mamas as well and how people can tap in with you guys but I, this is another question i have i don't ask people this i don't know if i ever have actually i asked that about your children you know, what do you really want for them? Because it's, you know, those things drive us in conscious and unconscious ways, you know, as we shape and delight and be present to our kids the best way we can. But I feel like we're probably all in relatively similar stages of life, you know, even though kids are different ages. What do you really want more of for yourself right now? 
Mm. You know, like I'll, I'll give you a second to think like transitioning out of my role as lead as a lead pastor. I had this amazing revelation after 18 months of resting and just writing and doing things. I was like, oh, everything I want to do is still the substance of pastoring. I don't think it's going to be in the role I had at the, at, a, at this congre- at a congregation right now, but whether it's the teaching, whether it's being present to people one-on-one, whether it's helping support fund and give life to other people's dreams and desires for the world. I was like, Oh, I, I just want to keep doing the same thing. <laughs> That's, and it was really cool to see that. Cause I'm like, for me, it wasn't the role. It was the work and the substance, you know, that I was doing. And so I'm like, I want to, find creative ways to keep doing that you know that's that's what because i'm in a big transitional season so for you stages growing up ourselves you know what do you really want more of you know it could be a an elevation of things you're doing or or new things you know you're going into you know interior exterior vocational personal connection could be anything Hmm. well um i turned 40 in a couple months um Yeah, this is kind of a good season. You know, this is those those big birthdays are sort of an opportunity to look back and look ahead and think, what what do I want for this next decade, maybe? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just so blessed that I had the opportunity to write this book with Victoria because um, it has definitely shown a light on a side of me that I haven't gotten to exercise very much, which is doing theology practice mm. theology and writing it. Mm. Um, I've always loved theology, but my work has been so much more um, advocacy focused, um, organizational focus, and um, it's been great. It's, 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 it is theology, of course, mm. but I haven't had as much opportunity to write and um, read just, just about God and what that means, how mm. important who we think God is, how that changes our daily life. I love that. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that this next decade brings more opportunities for that kind of work for me. Mm, that's awesome. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. My, my wife and I both turned 39, like in two months. So we're like almost like right there. Yeah. Uh, I know we've talked a good portion about this already, but I, I find myself like craving delight. I just want more delight. <laughs> I want more <laughs> things that I enjoy, that I love. I I want, um, you know, there's just so much labor involved in ministry and, and being a mother. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of work, you know, like totally. you tired very often, fatigued, you know, and um, I'm, I'm new to learning about delight as a spiritual discipline about being mm. intentional with our delight, like I said earlier, you know, carving out the time for the things that delight you, uh, because they sustain you because they remind you of the truth that life is brutal, but also beautiful. You know, Mm. I, I want, I want more of, I'm really hungry Mm. for, um, for delight. And, and I hope to be more intentional as we move forward, not just with writing books, but even on a small daily scale, Mm. you know, carving out space for something that just brings me joy, life, love. I'm really, I'm, I really hope to, to be more disciplined in that moving forward. That's mm. what I, I want. Mm, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. One of the first, like, kind of like tag, that wasn't like an official mission statement, but one of the first lines for our church early on was the world's both broken and in need of healing and beautiful in need of enjoyment. 
And, you know, I think to take the task, it's very easy as, you know, high capacity driven people, ambitious to think, you know, the enjoying part is something you do after the work's done, you know, as if it's not the work itself, you know, and that can express Mm -hmm. itself in many ways. So, yes, I think both both of those are uh, are uh, very different, but also just so both central, you know, to who we are and where we're going. So. Thank you so much. Can you let let the listeners know also Reverend Mamas? Because I think that's how I, I think that's, I, I'm assuming that's how I think I first came across both of you was through that account. So what is Reverend Mamas? And also how do people tap in, follow along? One last plug for the book, let people know how they can sort of get in, t- in touch with you. Well, you can order the book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, Walmart, anywhere books are sold. You can order it That's online. Awesome. It's also in a lot of bookstores. So you can look for it in your local bookstore. Uh, Reverend Mamas is our Instagram account, which we started uh, initially because we wanted to market the book, but then it sort of evolved and became for us an outlet to share more tips for talking to your kids about faith, to share more theology for kids, to share devotional content, to promote other um, progressive, safe, inclusive, sound theology books for kids, um, to share more about our ministries as female pastors. So Reverend Mamas is the best way to follow us and stay tuned, uh, when it comes to what we might do next. And, um, yeah. Mm. Is there, is there anywhere personally for either one of you is like Reverend Mamas, is that the best place for people to go to find where both of you are to follow along the journey? We do do that together. I mean, you know, our personal social media accounts with pictures of kids and all of that. And those are private, but (laughs) we we both post on Reverend Mamas and how. Gotcha. Okay. Yes. Cool. Nice. So yes, the the new book, My Love God is Everywhere, is out now, and that's that's cool. I didn't I didn't know that it was also in Target and other spots like that. That's awesome. So, yes, get that book, and you know, for some of you with kids, the book will be awesome. If you have nieces, nephews, people you love in your life, kids, families, and you need to slip in, you know, some good books in the midst of perhaps other ones, then these are great. You know, great. I feel like the kids gifts are like, it's like stories. It's great ways to like smuggle in more radical truths, you know, for people, the watchdogs may not know it's getting in there. So, yeah. And also, you know, uh, I think for, for people who are not just to see that there's loving, caring people who I think are helping create the future and also who are still, caring about people, you know, and still loving and leading in in hopeful ways, you know, that I think many people are looking for. So appreciate both of you. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. Okay.